electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Tonight, this is Ford's electric truck going up in flames earlier this year. Just how safe are all EV batteries? More mixed messages from the Biden administration on China, what the Treasury Secretary just said that is business holding its breath. A new wrinkle in the Disney DeSantis feud, and this time, Mickey is going straight to the mattress. A story on concert ticket prices sure to generate some bad blood. And over and out in Oakland, a city losing another sports team to Las Vegas. That story is on deck. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. All right, good evening here and good afternoon to everybody out west. Thanks for joining us. We're going to get to all those stories and more through the hour. But first up on Last Call, SpaceX's long-awaited Starship rocket exploded mid-flight today. Thankfully, no crew was on board. While the SpaceX Starship fell short of reaching space, Elon Musk said the company, quote, learned a lot. So what do we make of this? CNBC.com space reporter Michael Sheets is on site at the launch site with more. Michael, what exactly happened today? Well, Brian, good evening and welcome to the location of South Padre Island, Texas, where SpaceX launched its nearly 400 foot tall Starship rocket today. Fully stacked. This thing is twice as powerful as the Saturn V rocket that launched the Apollo missions. And it got off the ground today and flew for about three minutes to the applause and cheers of many thousands of onlookers here in Texas. Now, about three minutes in, after a couple engine shutdowns and some other issues, the flight termination system was intentionally detonated to destroy the rocket and keep it from going into harm's way. But overall, SpaceX and the rest of the space industry, including leaders of NASA, praised this mission as a great accomplishment, a piece of the puzzle towards a greater progress in the company's plans to not just use this massive rocket to launch satellites, but to also take people to the moon and maybe someday Mars. So what would be the timeline, Michael? Let's say the next version works fine. They do a few more. What would be the first time or year or month, whatever, that we could expect this to, pardon the pun, take off? That's a great question. And it's going to come down to some of the data analysis that SpaceX does in the coming weeks about how this flight went. There's also some damage to the ground infrastructure as well that they'll have to repair But they have other prototypes already built here. The whole idea of this Starbase facility in Texas is about rapid manufacturing. So they're going to try to roll that out as soon as possible, maybe a few months, maybe a little bit more. But the grander vision towards maybe someday flying people will require them flying, as company leadership has previously said, hundreds of missions. So we're going to see a lot more of this in in the years to come. Michael Sheets down in Texas. Michael, really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, for reaction on this, let's bring in Wedbush Security Senior Equity Analyst Dan Ives and former NASA astronaut and International Space Station Commander Leroy Chow. Real pleasure to have you both on, but uh, Astronaut Chow, I want to start with you. I, I mean, I know people that don't like Musk in particular are going to say, look, it's a failure, he failed. But in many ways, 
He's not wrong, is he? A rocket of this size to go that far, not the end of the world. Well, that's right. This is actually uh, farther than a lot of people thought he would get on the first flight. The reason being, as you pointed out, this is the largest by far rocket that has ever been launched. Um, it is also a very aggressive program. It hasn't been in development for that long. And when you do it aggressively, you, you're going to have these kinds of things happen. You're going to have failures and you're going to learn from them. The fact that he got this rocket off the pad, three minutes is about how long that main booster is supposed to go. It went pretty much full duration. It had some problems. It was clear that some of the engines either didn't light and or were shut down in flight. So that's got to be addressed. But by and large, it got there. It just failed. The Starship itself failed to separate, failed to light its own engines and, and continue on into space. But just think about it. A cluster of 33 engines that has never, ever been tried before. The only rocket that came close was the Soviet moon rocket in the 1960s. The N1 had a cluster of 30 engines, and the closest the Russians ever came to getting it into space was around a 50, 50 or 60 second flight. Put that into perspective for us, Leroy. Again, if you can, I'll stick with you. And Dan, I'll get to you in just a second. 33 rockets on this one rocket. So maybe people at home are like, oh, another rocket launch, whatever. No, this thing is gigantic. Put, put into context how big this rocket really is or was. Sure, absolutely. I mean, this rocket is, you know, 16.7 million pounds of thrust or something like that at, at liftoff. I mean, think about it. The Saturn moon rockets had seven and a half million pounds of thrust. So this thing is over twice as powerful. Uh, even NASA's uh, space launch system, the Artemis One flight from November, uh, that was about 8.6 million pounds, I believe. So this was almost twice as much as that. And, you know, 33 engines. Uh, like I said, this, this was a, a great accomplishment to get as far as they did today. Yeah, so, Dan, here's the, here's the question we have, and we brought you on for a specific reason, which is to maybe tie the two together, which is Musk's businesses. Yesterday on the show, we talked about Twitter and Tesla. Today, Tesla stock took another big hit. It, it appears just from the untrained eye that there's some kind of relationship between how Musk's other businesses do and how Tesla stock trades? Or is that just, do you think, just dumb luck? Look, I think right now, I mean, he's juggling a lot of balls at the same time. I mean, the complexity, as Leroy was talking about, if you look what's happening at SpaceX, and obviously a huge success today, but clearly, you know, massive, you know, sort of challenges ahead to get to the next level. And then, of course, Tesla, they're going through a price war. And then at the same time, Musk is continuing to spend so much time on Twitter. I think from an investor perspective, there's just concern in terms of just balancing all that at such a pivotal time for all these companies. Yeah, and, and do you, as a Tesla analyst, Dan, do you like watch SpaceX launches to see what happens out of a professional well, interest? Maybe you're personally curious, but you know what I mean. Well, it, it's important because it is all tied together in terms of the Musk ecosystem because SpaceX, the more successful that's going to be, I mean, that's important in terms of just from us, from a wealth perspective, more and more he's funded SpaceX. If you look at it from Tesla stock. And I think if SpaceX continues to have successes or failures, that ultimately takes up more must time, which is a negative for Tesla. And that was the whole issue here with Twitter. And I do believe we're getting to a fork in the road period where Musk is, is I think, finding stretched in a lot of directions in terms of the complexity we're seeing today 
being front and center. You know, Leroy, there's a lot of people that have strong opinions about Musk. He used to be the hero of the left with Teslas and green autos and renewables. Now a lot of the left hates him because the Twitter files and he bought Twitter and did all this other stuff. Forget about that. What is Elon Musk doing for space? I say I will say travel down the roads for space exploration, big rockets, whatever. I mean, how how valuable is he to that industry? Whatever one thinks about the person. As far as the space industry goes, I think Elon Musk and Tesla and uh, SpaceX, sorry, are, are actually absolutely critical to the future of space exploration because when they started in 2020 or t- 2002, uh, nobody gave him any any you know everybody's thinking, well, who is this guy? He did PayPal. He's a software guy. What does he know about rockets? He's making all these wild claims, but he actually went and did it. Nobody thought he would be able to. Uh, efficiently recover first stage boosters, refurbish and reuse them and bring the launch cost of a satellite down as far as 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 SpaceX has, basically from hundreds of millions of dollars down to around 35 million. And so that's a pretty huge, huge decrease. And so going forward, NASA people, I mean, they're they become believers. They're, you know, originally they said, wow, uh, well, you know, this guy just got lucky. But I mean, NASA's he's in the critical path from landing on the moon. They're going to use starships to land on the moon. I mean, NASA is. So it's in the critical path. And frankly, I think uh, without SpaceX, uh, we just kind of keep, you know, plodding along kind of like we unfortunately have been over the last several years. Biggest attempted rocket launch ever. I mean, you got to give them credit for even trying it. Astronaut Leroy Chow, analyst Dan Ives, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Speaking of technology, this is an awesome or awful, you decide, programming note for you. So, and this was not my idea, by the way. Tomorrow night on Last Call, I'm going to be interviewing me. It's an AI version of myself. Now, that's just sort of the artist rendition, but there's going to be an actual AI me. My team is calling him Faux Brian. They say he's far more interesting than I am. Our friends at Forever Voices are building him right now. So, yeah, we got to get kind of thinking about what I'm going to ask. What would you ask yourself? If a computer was playing you, what would you ask Yourself. Anyway, what should I ask myself? I feel like I need to lay down right now. Scan the QR code on your screen. That'll bring you to our Twitter page where you can submit questions of your own. We might use some on the show. Tune in for this uh, groundbreaking, shall we say, and fun on a Friday interview tomorrow night. I'm going to ask myself, like, real questions and then, like, personal questions. All right, meantime... The major stock averages fell again today. The Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ all lower. AT&T, the worst performer in the S&P 500, losing more than 10%. We'll get more on AT&T in a bit. Snap-on tools, the biggest moneymaker in the market today, up nearly 8%. By the way, the S&P 500 down more than 7% over the past year. All right, here's the way too early look at tomorrow's futures. That was that was a way too quick look. I was up for like half a second. All right. Anyway, up next, it looks like Joe is about to go. Despite some lousy poll numbers, the president apparently set to announce a bid for four more years. We'll talk about it next. Plus, Ron DeSantis facing another legal hurdle in his fight with Disney. We'll get more on that on the other side. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? 
AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. All right, time now for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories that you're likely to be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. First up, ARK Invest Kathy Wood saying Tesla could hit $2,000 in five years off an investment in robo-taxis. Here's what she said earlier today on CNBC. The price target for our stock, and I think it's just hitting now, uh, for 2027, because we do have a five-year uh, investment time horizon, is uh, our expected value is roughly uh, $2,000, and that's within a range of $1,400 to $2,500, our bear and, uh, and bull case. All right, next up, Mark Zuckerberg announcing Meta will slow hiring and could pursue even more layoffs at the company. He unveiled the reorganization plans at an employee meeting today, just days after finishing cuts that impacted 10,000 workers. So what exactly is going on with Facebook and Meta? Gene Munster, managing partner of Deepwater Asset Management, joining us now on the phone. We appreciate you hopping on on short notice because this news just coming out in the last hour or so, Gene. Uh, is this some acknowledgement that either maybe they A, overhired, or B, the, the metaverse is simply not working? Well, they definitely overhired and the metaverse is not working. So both of those are true. And I think that uh, we've had a sense that he's acknowledged that over the past three months, that making this the year of efficiency. And so what, what I read into uh, tonight's uh, uh, breaking news is that he ultimately is going to be making 2024 the year of efficiency, too. And just to put in the context, uh, 2023, they're going to uh, reduce headcount by 25 or so percent. That's well ahead of what the other tech companies, most of them are in the 5 to 10 percent uh, range. Uh, but going to 1 to 2 percent growth in headcount or growth in hiring, he said, per year after this, I think is uh, actually a sign that he wants this to continue. To put that 1 to 2 percent into perspective, is over the last seven years, they've grown headcount uh, from 47% per year uh, to 20% with a compound of just over 30. So they, they, uh, this is a wicked slowdown in growth and I think a sign that Zuckerberg is really trying to pull his profitability act together. Elon Musk, 20, 80% of Twitter either left or quit or was pushed out, laid off, whatever you want to call it, and yet the website still runs. Um, do you think people are looking at Elon Musk and thinking, you know what, we really need all these people? I, I feel that Zuckerberg was uh, inspired uh, by Musk and how aggressively he has gone after this. And that was the one uh, Facebook uh, meta leads in terms of public companies when it comes to headcounts. And as you said, is on the private side, Twitter is by far and away the most aggressive and a sign that they can keep things uh, shiny side up despite these cuts. 
And so, yes, I think that uh, this has been part of uh, Zuckerberg taking in what investors want and also seeing that he can politically get away with it. Before Musk, you couldn't do this. And I would suspect that what you're going to see from companies, especially Microsoft, there's going to be more cuts coming from Microsoft. They've been the biggest, uh, they've been aggressive in hiring over the last five years, and they haven't made, I think, the significant cuts that they need to. So that's where my eyes are turning to in this impact of Musk influencing other tech leaders. Gene, we really appreciate coming on. Hopping on the phone. Gene Munster, thank you very much. All right, next up, the Biden administration putting pressure on China. The White House set to unveil a new executive order which would curb U.S. investment in China. However, in a speech earlier today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning that a, quote, decoupling of business relationships with China would be disastrous. Here to decode the seeming mixed messaging is CNBC senior White House correspondent Kayla Tausche. Kayla. Well, Brian, Secretary Yellen played both hawk and dove in today's speech. She slammed China for its unfair economic practices, barriers to market access, and coercion of vulnerable trading partners during what she described as a particularly fraught moment between the two countries. But Yellen, who said she plans to travel to China at an appropriate time, also said Beijing has an opportunity to make different choices. Our path is not preordained and it is not destined to be costly. The trajectory of this relationship is the aggregate of choices that all of us in these two great powers make over time, including when to cooperate, when to compete. The remarks come as the Biden administration prepares to ratchet up restrictions on U.S. investment in Chinese semiconductors, AI, and quantum computing. Sources tell me the screening program will be structured as a one-year pilot, with additional sectors potentially added after that. The administration is preparing to unveil the program in the coming weeks ahead of a meeting with G7 allies in May. And there could be more penalties to come. Three sources tell me the U.S. trade representative is considering raising tariffs on certain Chinese exports as a penalty for China's falling short on the phase one trade deal. This is the House Ways and Means leadership challenges USTR to enforce the deal more strictly. A review of tariffs could come to a head later this year. A senior trade official tells me no final decision on that front has been made. But, Brian, there is no shortage of pressure from both sides of Pennsylvania to do more on no shortage of issues. Kayla, NBC News reporting that President Biden could announce his reelection campaign as soon as Tuesday. Kayla, tell us what you know. Well, three sources tell NBC News President Biden is expected to make his reelection bid official through a video message as soon as Tuesday, which is seen as something of an auspicious day since it marks the fourth anniversary of Biden's 2020 campaign announcement. He's expected to meet with top donors in D.C. next Friday evening and continue crisscrossing the country touting his legislative achievements, even if official campaign events don't begin for another several months. Brian. Kayla, I I want to put you on the spot here. So Feel free to duck this if you want to. But I've been tweeting about this because we've gotten so few interviews with the president compared to anyone in the past, Obama, President Bush, Trump, whoever it might be. You'll get a quip here or maybe a recorded sit down once or twice a year. Is there any growing frustration among you and the White House press corps that this is a president who ran on transparency, but we can't seem to get an interview with him? 
Yes, and in the White House press briefings, this has there's been a growing chorus of reporters who say, when will the president come to the briefing room? When, when will he have a press conference on U.S. soil? He does them a lot on foreign soil, but he didn't on his Ireland trip a couple weeks ago. And you know, when will he make himself generally more available to TV networks? He used to do a lot of town hall style events. He hasn't done that in over a year. And there have been a lot of television personalities coming in and out this driveway behind me trying to get that interview with him after he makes this announcement. But the White House has been very strategic about his availability. They know that he's prone to gaffes. And so it's unclear how much or exactly when we could see the president in that type of format. Yeah, I mean, I know we get the press briefings, but he is the president. The public deserves to hear from him and have him answer hopefully some tough questions live and in an unscripted manner. I think that's democracy dies in darkness, I was told. So Kayla Tausche, thank you very much. Sure. All right, now let's get to our panel on all this. Former U.S. Senator from North Dakota, Heidi Heidkamp, and former Council of Economic Advisors, Acting Chair Tyler Goodspeed. Uh, Senator, there's a lot there for you to comment on. I mean, pick which one you want, whether it's Janet Yellen sort of almost contradicting a little bit the White House on China or the fact that President Biden uh, looks like he's going to run again. I think that she was trying to push back against this attitude that our, our economies are decoupling, that the countries are decoupling. But, you know, when you look at it, you look at what not what she says, but what the administration is doing. And it's clear that the administration is responding to uh, hawks all across the country, China hawks, as well as a bipartisan China hawks in the Congress and basically saying, look, there are limitations on what we're going to do business with you on. And these are pretty clearly identified. I think there was some hope that there would be a reset from the Trump administration. But if you had to look at it, it looks a whole lot like Trump anti-China policies. But what, I, what I'm struck by is, um, you know, anytime that you get a divorce, everybody fights over who gets the friends. Well, our friends are our European allies, our trading partners. Um, they look at the relative, uh, you know, advanced strength of our economies, and they're not willing to give up that Chinese market. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be a real challenge, I think, for this administration to walk this line that they've now created. It is interesting, Tyler, because this administration will scream up and down and say, you know, we are not Trump. We're the exact opposite of Trump. Ah, but yet these are all Trump policies that have not been changed. There's still tariffs. I, th I think that's right of the, the senator and you to, to highlight that continuity on the tariff front. I think that the current administration has gone beyond tariffs with a massive volume of subsidies at one point two trillion dollars over 10 years in subsidies under the, the inflation, so-called Re Inflation Reduction Act, over $50 billion in subsidies for semiconductors. And I actually think that strategy is a mistake because, first of all, it presumes that the United States federal government can know what the critical technologies, critical production capacities of the future will be. Secondly, it has really antagonized a lot of our allies and partners. I was just in Europe last, last month. I've recently spoken to some economic officials from Japan, and I hear across the board that they feel really antagonized by just the volume of subsidies that the United States government is, is, is throwing at some of these, these products. And, uh, and really, I think a more efficient approach would be to simply create a tax and regulatory environment that incentivizes reshoring, incentivizes investment in domestic production capacity. Unfortunately, as of January 1st of this year, companies can no longer fully expense the cost of new investment in industri industrial equipment or machinery. 
And that's, you know, Senator Heitkamp, that's what's interesting about this. Okay, and by the way, you know, North Dakota, your state, people think oil and gas. Guess what? The Upper Plains states are actually the leaders in renewable energy. Wind energy is Iowa, South Dakota, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Texas. Those are the winners of renewables. And yet we do these kind of things. We want more people to buy electric cars, and then we remove most of the federal tax credits. Well, it's, it's interesting. I want to just build on this idea that we've created these incentives. You've got to couple that with the Buy America. So not only have we created these incentives, but we've locked out allies in terms of their ability to compete um, for the new business that is coming in renewables. And, and you look at the role, the outsized role that China plays in the rare mineral space. Um, you know, we know that when we look at electric cars or electrifying our transportation system, we're going to need additional natural resources. China was very strategic in buying those those resources up, building relationships in South America, in Africa, sometimes not always friendly. But, you know, we're in, we, we've got to play the long game because that's the game China's playing. And, and I don't see a long game strategy here that's going to work, especially with our allies. China doesn't measure its long game in years. It measures it in decades or, or longer. Uh, Senator Heitkamp, thank you very much. Tyler Goodspeed, appreciate it to both of you. Have a good night. All right, so ahead, Disney lobbyists are ramping up the pressure on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The latest turn in the ongoing battle as the potential 2024 candidate continues his book tour in other states. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Today's RBI is all about music and money. Lots of money. Because if you've gone to a concert lately, this will not be news to you. Concert prices and the tickets are getting ridiculous, like take out a mortgage expensive. The Wall Street Journal notes today that the average resale price on SeatGeek is more than doubled in just four years from $125 to $252. But for the superstar acts, the prices are in the stratosphere. Look at these numbers for the average resale price for these shows. Bruce Springsteen, $469. Beyonce, $480. And Taylor Swift, commanding $1,311. Remember, these are the average prices, including awful seats, obscured view, up in the nosebleeds. Some tickets on SeatGeek for a Swift show in Boston in May are going for five, seven, or even $9,000 each. Look for, there it is. Look for yourself. The cheapest ticket we could find was over $1,000. Hard to shake that off. What about the boss? We look at an upcoming Bruce Springsteen show here in New Jersey over Labor Day. Pretty good seats? Pretty good. I mean, not the best. Are $625 each, and it goes up from there. (laughs) Not too bad for a blue-collar kid from Freehold. Oh, of course, that does not even include things like parking or $20 beers. Kind of makes us long for the glory days of cheap concerts. Random but interesting. 
All right, Disney striking back against the Florida governor yet again. The company telling its lobbyists to step up the fight against DeSantis and his allies in Florida. On top of that, Disney appears to have set itself up with another advantage against the board that DeSantis appointed to oversee governance of Disney World. In a public meeting yesterday, the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District announced Disney made a late agreement to set its own utility rates on the theme park. Chairman Martin Garcia said the board will, quote, have to evaluate the legality of that agreement, adding that he's, quote, never heard of such a thing. The feud between DeSantis and Disney does not appear to be going away anytime soon, but it probably should. Don't need to talk about it. The CBC political finance reporter Brian Schwartz and New York Times reported CBC contributor James Stewart. James, I want to start with you because you literally wrote a book on Disney. I mean, how, first off, is this a dumb fight by both parties? Does Disney need to back off? Because as far as I can tell, DeSantis is not hurting Disney's business. No, Disney is not driving this feud. Uh, I think Bob Iger has said he'd sit down um, with DeSantis. I think he'd be happy to bury the hatchet and move on. What's so puzzling to me about this is that the interests of Disney, DeSantis in Florida are overwhelmingly aligned. Florida should want Disney to thrive. They want more tourists. They want more income. They want Disney to pay more taxes. They have offered Disney $700 million in tax breaks to move another 2,000 people, including the Imagineers there. So their interests are completely together. And except for this ridiculous argument about, uh, you know, a provision about affecting what children are going to learn in Florida, that has nothing to do with Disney's business. I mean, yes, Disney took a position. I'm sure they did that after pressure from some of their employees. But Disney has nothing to do with the education of Florida children. And by the way, DeSantis's bill passed. Disney arguing against it may have caused him some personal pique, but it had no practical effect whatsoever. So why is DeSantis waging this war? I mean, so far, it has mostly not had a big economic impact, certainly not on Disney. It could, potentially. But so far, yeah. Disney's going to be making money off this. They're saving money on what now Florida will have to do that they do. So I think it's for political gain. Maybe he scored with the base, but I think that's done. I don't know why he's pursuing it. And his opponents are now starting to make political capital out of this. Yeah, you wonder, Brian, like maybe Disney feels some momentum. If, if they are asking their, their lobbyists to ramp up the fight against DeSantis, they, they must feel like they've got some momentum. Against well, the governor. Well, I think they, they might have some momentum, but I also think, you know, time is of the essence here. The Florida legislature, uh, the session there for in Florida ends in May, really at the beginning of May. So they don't have a lot of time to fight back here. And I think they realize that. But what are they what are they fighting? That's what I think to my point to Jim was what exactly is the fight? Well, I think I think the, the question is, right, where there are certain pieces of legislation that are trying to get through the legislature in Florida. I know it's a local issue, but it's important for Disney in this case, where it would take away power from Disney uh, for their land deals in and around uh, Walt Disney World. Right. It would give more power to this to this board that, that Ron DeSantis has basically formed. And I'm sure there is a concern uh, if you're a Disney executive uh, what exactly would be the next stage here if they're going to basically make those land agreements null and void and allow a DeSantis-appointed board to decide what those land agreements will be, what will be surrounding Walt Disney It World, just, it, there's part of this that, James, it just seems so silly. <laughs> I agree. I mean, DeSantis has said that he might put a prison next to Disney. I, I mean, please, this is absurd. This is preposterous. How, I mean, is that the best use for land adjacent to Disney World? Of course not. 
I mean, at the very least, they could, you know, create some housing or things that would attract more more tourists. And that's why I don't really get this. Does DeSantis really want to shoot himself in the foot to just score some political point to, like, harm Disney? What does he want Disney to do to say, oh, we're sorry, we never should have opposed your bill? I, I, I don't get that at all. And by the way, that was the, that was the, the now CEO, the form, the, the guy gone, Bob right. Chapek. That That's wasn't right. Iger. I mean, it feels yeah, like DeSantis exactly. and Iger even... need to like get in a room and try to hug this out. Well, they, again, and Bob Iger in a Time Magazine article recently it seemed to open that door, right? That he was willing to sit down with Ron. He doesn't want this fight, right? He does not. I can you can tell he doesn't want to keep going on like this. But that article came out, right? But that was after. I believe it came out after Bob Iger really went on offense against Ron DeSantis. So it doesn't seem like this feud anytime yeah. soon is going to be ending. We got to go. It does feel a little bit to me because the cynic in me that it's like Florida versus California, maybe for a reason. 2024, the guy, you know, who might bit. run. Never know. Never know. Brian Schwartz, Jim Stewart, <laughs> really, really appreciate it. Thank you. <sighs> it's like every day. All right, still ahead. We knew Ford's electric lightning truck had some battery fire risks earlier this year. But now, only now, have we got the video for you to see, and it wasn't easy to get. That's next. All right, welcome back. The Ryzen EVs also sparking some concerns about fire risk from their batteries. Police video obtained by CNBC showing three Ford F-150 Lightnings bursting into flames a few months ago. Just sitting there in that lot by themselves, and they caught fire. This after one of the truck's batteries just caught on fire. Now, those fires did happen earlier this year, but this is the first time that we have actually seen the footage, which was obtained with a request to area police by CNBC's Mike Whalen. EV battery fires are rare. We acknowledge that, but when they happen... They can be extremely difficult and dangerous to put out, requiring either massive amounts of water, maybe 10 times out of a gas car, special foam, or these new snuff blankets they're trying out. The NTSB says high-voltage lithium-ion batteries can experience, quote, uncontrolled increases in pressure and temperature, which can lead to its fires. That's the NTSB. It is one reason airlines don't want you to bring one of these types of batteries on the plane. How concerned should we be? My next guest is a governor of a state that is making a major investment in EVs, and even as a new plan calling for more than 2 million electric cars on state roads by 2035. Joining us now, we're pleased to welcome in Colorado Governor Jared Polis. Governor Polis, listen, nobody denies that the EV boom is, is, is starting, and there's a lot of interest around it, but I, I'm just trying to point out it's not all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. That, that places like in Frisco and, you know, Cherry Village, whatever it is, their, their fire departments need to be specially prepared, do they not? Hey, look, thanks for uh, touting some of the great Colorado destinations, Frisco, uh, Vail, Aspen, and yes, Cherry Creek Village. <laughs> um, the National Transportation Safety Board uh, puts out statistics in this area. So per 100,000 cars, uh, the fire rate of vehicles for internal combustion engines, remember gas is very flammable, is 1,525 per 100,000. For electric vehicles, per 100,000 electric vehicles, it's 25 vehicle fires. So that's an order of magnitude difference in safety. Electric vehicles are safer. That being said, if avoiding all fire risks are your thing, take a bicycle. There's no engine in it, and it isn't combustion. Well, so, well, your I mean, state, your state relative, is a lot of mountains. When you look at the statistics. Bikes are hard in Colorado. Uh, I'm yeah, just so going to, you, you know, maybe the, the western uh, half anyway, it's hard. But here, I hear your point. 
But but an electric car fire can be 5,000 degrees. Water would literally evaporate before it hits the car. I've talked to firefighters about this. They're confused. And in some buildings, in some cities, they're starting to ban electric cars because they're afraid that the structure of the building could become unsound if there's a fire in a garage. Well, I think that's a ridiculous policy. If you care about your building, you're going to ban gas engines first because gas is highly flammable uh, and the fire risk is much greater. Uh, Do all vehicles have a fire risk? They do. Um, And, uh, you know, again, it's much lower for electric vehicles. It doesn't mean there's never going to be a fire. But an electric vehicle is a safe decision. The overall vehicle accident rate and injury rate is about 40 percent less overall for electric vehicles. So much lower fire risk. 40% lower injury risk. Do people still get hurt in all kinds of vehicles? They do. And people should drive safely and they should buckle up. What is the plan to get 2 million cars sold? How are you going to do that? Because listen, here's the thing. As somebody who's driven a lot of electric cars, mountains and cold can be the enemy. Uh, We have electric school buses in some of our districts with negative 10 degree temperatures, have not had any issues with those. We rolled out a major initiative to help our school districts electrify, saving money on gas so they can use it in the classroom instead. With regard to consumer vehicles, we're making electric vehicle charging accessible. And then we're, we're really trying to piggyback on the federal tax credits, which remember, those are only usable in maybe tw- 12 or 15 of the 75 models of electric vehicles out there. We're going to be uh, you know, model agnostic with our uh, tax credits to further reduce the cost of electric vehicles in Colorado and help make them more accessible for people's budgets. Uh, Governor, I, I'm sure it didn't escape notice that it's April 20th, which is 420, which to our audience that may not know, 420 is kind of the slang for pot. Today is kind of like an unofficial holiday. You and Washington State were the first states, same time, to legalize recreational use. I think it was 11 years ago. Gosh, time is flying. Um, how has it gone? I'm sure there's a lot of tax revenue, but what what... Are, are there any noticeable downsides that you guys have, have figured out? Uh, no, it's been a very positive experience here, about $14 billion in sales. And remember, much of that would have been illegal underground market sales that benefit cartels if we didn't legalize and regulate it. So it's not like it, it would have gone away. $14 billion in sales, tax revenue, tens of thousands of jobs, uh, help fill blighted areas with thriving businesses. It's been a great economic stimulus for our state. And I'm very proud to say that underage use of marijuana has gone down during this period as well. So it's been very effective in terms of educating and regulating marijuana, just like we do alcohol and tobacco. Well, I wonder if the use is going down because once your parents start sparking up, it's not as cool as it used to be and you just try to do something else. Right. If you're mom you know, there's a lot of psychology to it. You're absolutely do, right. If your mom it's, it's and not, dad are doing yeah. bong hits, right? Like, why would you like, that's not cool. Mom and dad are doing it. Maybe, maybe you just came up with the, the psychology behind it. But we're, we're just proud of the fact that underage use has gone down and that uh, we've driven cartels and, and gangs out of that marijuana market. And, and that's a step forward for public safety. Fantastic. Colorado Governor Jared Polis. I tell you what, Governor, uh, only thing I love this show. But I'm really annoyed with the timing of its launch because you guys had the greatest ski season in 30 years. I made it out there for four days. I would have moved out there this year if I could. I imagine your state coffers will be flowing like the water in the streams in about a month. We have an epic ski season, and I'm going to be hitting the slopes uh, this Sunday. So uh, I'm glad I get one more in. Oh, I just bashed my head against the table because I wish I was there. Governor Jared Polis, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Best in 30 years. All right, coming up, 
Twitter taking a bold step against high-profile accounts that don't pay their monthly fee. It's like all the rage, ironically, on Twitter. That's next. All right, welcome back. Time now for a quick last call watch list. We're keeping an eye on old Ma Bell, AT&T, and not in a good way. AT&T investors, sorry to say, lost a ton of money today with its biggest one-day decline in 23 years. Fell 10%. Wall Street didn't like AT&T's earnings, which showed softer than expected revenue and a declining cash on hand. Does have, though, a 6% dividend yield if that kind of thing turns you on. All right, next up, another 100-year-old plus company in the news. Well, Wall Street news. Should you buy General Electric? Jefferies thinks so. They upgraded GE today. The analyst noting GE's aerospace segment is a high-growth business. They slapped a $120 per share target on GE. Now, GE was once the most heavily weighted stock in the S&P 500. It is now 72nd on that list. It used to be a hedge fund that made light bulbs. Not anymore. All right, reminder, we got a uh, kind of a cool programming note to give you tomorrow night on Last Call. We're going to do something into AI, right? So our friends at our beloved, well, there it is. Faux Brian is what our team is calling it. I'm going to interview an AI version of myself. Forever Voices is building the computer version of me as we speak. Honestly, I had nothing to do with this. I have no idea what to expect. A different AI company, by the way, Lensa, did make that AI-generated picture of me. Now, I posted it on social, and you guys had some fun things to say. Alex says, I see a man that just won a major naval battle in World War II. M. Bradley says, the CNBC Marlboro man. Some guy named Rich Handler said, Chat GPT, please make a picture of me with a dash of Superman and an extra pinch of cool. By the way, Rich Handler is the CEO of Jeffries. Tune in for the groundbreaking and maybe final ever interview. <laughs> let's call it tomorrow night. All right, in the meantime, let's get you caught up on all the big stories for the world of business and a few maybe that aren't that important, but we like them. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. It's official. Twitter has begun taking blue check marks away from verified accounts. Elon Musk announced last week he'd be purging the checks and that in order to stay verified, you got to pay eight bucks a month. Get ready for more meatballs and build-it-yourself bookshelves. IKEA announcing it will invest more than $2 billion over the next three years towards strengthening its U.S. presence with 17 new stores. Does Ozempic work on cats? Just kidding. Sort of. This is Patches. He weighs 40 pounds. The cat got a lot of attention after Richmond Rescue Organization posted about him. That post, though, helped him find his forever home. Crazy sale alert, giant T-Rex skeleton sold at an auction for $6.1 million in Switzerland. More than half of the skeleton's bones are original and it's about 12 feet tall. And look at this, a pro BMX rider performing stunts on a hot air balloon 2,000 feet in the air. Wow. That, is, I mean, that is, if you're listening to the podcast or on the radio, that BMX rider in like a half pipe, 2,000 feet up in a hot air balloon. I mean, how far is this stuff going to go? All right, coming up, is Sin City turning into a major sports town? It looks like Vegas will soon have its own baseball team. We'll tell you who.
All right, what is exactly going on with Oakland sports? Reportedly, the Oakland A's baseball team have reached a deal to move to Vegas. They bought land near the Vegas Strip. But A's fans, if there are any left after this announcement, will have to wait a while before they can see their team play in the desert. Team officials say they hope to be playing games at a new billion-dollar stadium but by 2027. Now, of course, Vegas already stole the beloved Oakland Raiders football team from the city, and then Vegas started both a hockey and WNBA team. For reactions, bring in SportsCorp founder and CEO Mark Gannis. He has helped drive many sales, relocations, stadium developments for other NFL teams and franchises. Uh, good to have you on set. Um, this is, let's not make it about Oakland. We know right. the issues. Let's make it more about Vegas. I mean, yeah. Vegas is saying, come, there used to be a lot of worry. Can't have sports and gambling in the same town. Right. Nobody cares anymore. Nobody cares. Nobody 30 cares. states already have gambling. So that, that's, you know, they've jumped the, jumped the whatever issue there is there. And Vegas has also been getting a tremendous amount of uh, businesses and people moving from California over into Nevada. So the demographics. Why would they do that? Yeah. <laughs> some, a little something called taxes, perhaps. Um, but it's, there's so much going on in Las Vegas right now. The teams that you mentioned, the Super Bowl that's going to be there this coming year is going to blow the doors off of Formula One. November. It's going to be amazing. I know a guy with two thumbs that's going to be there. <laughs> you want to be on the track. Well, I wish I was. Yeah, I got a little too old and too fat for that. But, yeah, still, it's going to be a – but Vegas sports scene is, is one of the most exciting in America. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's both the teams that are now their main teams and all of the big events that are going to be coming in as well that have already started coming in. It, it's really going to dominate the sports landscape for the next generation or two. I do wonder, like, does Vegas have the water? You know what I mean? They're, they, they're a unique place. They're yes. in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. It's not the place you'd think to see this giant growing city. You could probably see from the moon, I think. Um, are there concerns about Vegas in any form, whether it is population, labor, water, whatever it might be? There, there are concerns. Um, one of the things that the NBA found years ago when it had the All-Star game there was that people could show up from Los Angeles by driving, and a lot of people showed up criminal element people with guns and things like that. And there's a big shooting, if you recall, a big uh, rap star got killed that weekend. Uh, so there are going to be security concerns. Uh, but the hotels are fantastic. The restaurants are incredible. And the place knows how to put on a show. Yeah. Will we have an NBA team? Yeah, we're going to have an NBA team. Uh, interestingly, LeBron James wants to be the owner of that team. Uh, and, and the it's guaranteed wealth. I mean, that's, LeBron's already super rich, billionaire probably, but like owning a sports team is the ultimate trophy. It, it absolutely is, and that's why you're seeing so many former athletes who made a lot of money wanting to get Would it be a move or would it be a new team? Expansion team. This okay. Would be an expansion team. The league will generate at least $4 billion from that expansion team wow. to share. Yeah, it's a big, big number. Can can we please, I mean, I know I'm getting old and whatever. I'm, can we please bring back the Seattle Supersonics? Like, I know Chris, yep. this guy, Chris Hansen, I think, tried to do it. Yep, yep, that's right. Uh, there, actually, there have been a few efforts. Now that they have the arena, which is really a rebuilt arena, completely new, they've got the hockey team, the Kraken, I think we will see uh, Seattle get, get a basketball team back uh, in the not-too-distant future. The NBA is looking at two teams to expand, so Vegas and Seattle. Quickly, I am the, I'm, I am the only, I may be the only Chargers fan. In America. And I, even I'm getting frustrated because in L.A. it's just not working. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's more green in the, in the stands than light blue if the Eagles are in town. Is anybody talking about moving the Chargers back? Is that over? Is, we just got to accept it. it's the L.A. Chargers now? We need to accept it. That, that deal is done. It's a long-term deal. Uh, and there, there, you know, there isn't any real effort to, in San Diego to build a new stadium to bring a football team back. So I think we're, you know, just when you want to watch the Chargers, go to L.A. It's a beautiful stadium. I know, I know, but it's, you know. 
It's the L.A. Chargers. <laughs> Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Mark. All right. Pleasure. So do you know what happened 30 years ago tonight? The best-selling boy band of all time was formed. It is the Backstreet Boys. I mean, who could forget these incredible dance moves and iconic vocals? Tell me why it ain't nothing but a party. Tell me why it ain't nothing but a mistake. Tell me why. I mean, iconic dance moves. Let's go back in time to April 20th, 1993. The Backstreet Boys were formed. How? Five of the band members answered an ad in the Orlando Sentinel newspaper. Producer wanted to build a band with a new kids on the block look and a boys to men sound. Three years later, the Backstreet Boys released their first album and quickly became international sensations. Check this out. Since then, they've sold more than 100 million records worldwide. 100 million records. Wow. Well, that is it for Last Call tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for being with us. Shark Tank is next because you want it that way. You're welcome, Kareem. <laughs> If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.